Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. The story you're about to hear is a true birth story. It's the real deal, and it may not be appropriate for sensitive ears. On today's episode... I think one of the big things that cracked open for my husband and I pretty early in the pregnancy when we had just gotten the diagnosis is who are we to say what a successful life looks like? Because early on as parents, you, you know, when you first find out that you're pregnant, it's like, oh, I wonder if they're going to get your eyes or my hair, or, mm. you know, I wonder if they'll get your creative side or my math skills or whatever. And with this diagnosis, I think we just sort of took a step back and we were like, let's just make sure she's happy, you know? Let's just make sure she's a happy kid and that she's not an asshole. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe she'll go to college. Maybe she won't. You know, maybe she'll get her driver's license one day. Maybe she won't. Does it mean that her life isn't as valuable or isn't as much of a success as someone else's who can do all of those things? No. Hello, you're listening to The Birth Podcast. This is the season two finale. I'm Christy Williams, your host, and I honestly cannot think of a better way to end this season than with this birth story you're about to hear. My guest today is the talented filmmaker, Amber McGinnis. Amber came to our conversation for this episode with such a deep well of vulnerability and truth. And get this... Not only did she direct her first feature film while she was pregnant, but she also gave birth without any drugs at all. And then during the first few months of her postpartum period, she was still directing her film in post-production and then basically traveling the world to promote it with her tiny new baby. So of course, she's going to be telling us about all of that, but also she will be sharing with us what it was like to receive a positive trisomy 21 diagnosis in her pregnancy and what it was like to process that, learn from that, and then prepare to become a mommy to a child with Down syndrome. Just a little background, I met Amber through my husband, who was one of the producers of her film, International Falls, which, by the way, is a fantastic movie. Please watch it. The link is in the show notes. It has a very hilarious cast that you will recognize. Also linked in the show notes is a gorgeous short film that Amber made called The Adventure. That's all about her journey with her daughter, Isla, and receiving the diagnosis of Down syndrome and how that has changed her life. Click the link in the show notes for that as well. I just want to say to all of you, thank you for being here. It means a lot to me that you are on this journey with me. I hope that listening to the show the last couple seasons has empowered you and given you knowledge that you didn't have before. And now without further ado, the season two finale of the birth podcast, my conversation with Amber McGinnis. 
I always get a little bit nervous about doing these interviews before I start, but I just want to be honest with you. Like for some reason, I'm feeling nervous today. And I think it's because I feel like really honored that you're gifting me with your story. And so I just want to say thank you. I don't know, getting thank emotional. Um, <laughs> I'm, I really am appreciative that you're allowing me to receive this from you today. Thank you. Okay, I'm just going to get that out of the way. <laughs> so it's gone. Um, let's go back to young, yeah. young Amber. <laughs> Do you remember the time when you first maybe thought, oh, maybe I could be a mother one day? Or how did you sort of think about motherhood and being a mother before it happened to you? Oh, gosh. I don't think I ever had these big dreams of being a mom. I was always very career focused. And like as a kid, I have a younger sister that's two years younger than me. And people would ask us what we want to be when we grow up. And I would say, oh, I want to be an architect or I want to do this or that. I want to be in theater. And my sister would say, I want to be a mom. So I just, I thought that <laughs> if if that was the thing you wanted to do, you just knew it from early on. And I guess I thought I would eventually have kids. I just was waiting to kind of catch the bug <laughs> or mm-hmm. something like that. Oh, it's just so strange that I don't really have that deep desire yet or something. And eventually all that changed because I was in a very toxic relationship and was married for 10 years and then divorced. And when I met my now husband, before we ever even started to talk about getting married, we started talking about kids. And I was like, oh, okay. So I have more to do with the partnership of that and Mm -hmm. wanting to share that experience with the right person than it did, I think, anything else. (laughs) Right. Yeah. I identify with that completely. But was he the one that brought it up then in the relationship and that sort of, or or did you just feel like, oh, this is someone I, I could see this with for the first time? Yeah, I think our relationship is just built on so much trust and mutual respect that I felt like, oh, with a partner like this, I don't see myself having to take a step back from my creative work to have a kid. Mm Because I think maybe subconsciously, I had always had this thought that becoming a mom meant that I had to let go of all the things that I had been working really, really hard on (laughs) for my whole life. Mm -hmm. And I think when you meet a partner that respects you and respects your career choices and pushes you and drives you and motivates you, it's like, oh, I'm going to have a, you know, he's a team player. You know, this is something we'd be able to do together. So I wouldn't just be home alone. (laughs) Right. Yeah. You know, I think that's really important. And I think a lot of people feel or have felt that way. I know I certainly had a lot of fear around that. I had never really had a lot of role models in my life of women that were able to do both very successfully. And that's something I'm still looking for. (laughs) Like, where are the ladies that are showing me how they're handling this? But it's true. (laughs) It's like, there's something comforting about knowing that you have a partner that's got your back and has your Mm -hmm. best interests at heart. Yeah. So then can you tell me about the conception? And what's your conception journey? Well, it it was one of those situations since we had both, we had both been married before Mm. that we sort of just like laid our guts bare Mm. (laughs) and sort of attacked the relationship with so much truth. Like, you know, we played all of our cards at once. Like, Hey, if you don't like it, (laughs) like this is your get out of jail free card right now. Cause this is who I am as a whole person, the good, the bad, the ugly. And so we, we jumped in. So kids were part of the conversation very early on. It's not like we were 
oh, one day, you know, we were yeah. grown ass adults, you know, and I was nearing my mid mid thirties. So if we, you know, if it was something we were going to do, we knew it was something we wanted to kind of tackle sooner rather than later. Right. But then it was also, it was just about enjoying the presence of being in a good relationship. So we like traveled a bunch and then finally we were like, Hey, let's elope. That'll be fun. We'll rent a cabin in the woods and invite 10 of our closest friends and self-officiate. It'll be great. So we did this wild elopement (laughs) with a few of our close friends. How fun. And then we took off to Yosemite and did backcountry backpacking (laughs) um, and camping for six days. And I was nervous the whole time we were there because I was scheduled to start my period while we were gone. And I've been joking to everyone at our elopement party, like, oh, God, the bears are going to be after me. I'm so nervous about the bears. (laughs) Um, And, you know, so every day I was just waiting like, oh, God, I'm going to be backpacking and start my period. It's just going to be the worst because you like can't leave any trash when you're out on the trail. It's just you got to take everything with you. And it didn't happen. It didn't happen. It didn't happen. And I was like, oh, well, my body's under a lot of strain right now. You know, like this, this happens. I mean, Cheryl Strayed got her period when she was on her journey on the PCT, of course. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, I don't know. I love that. So it didn't happen. And then we flew home and we're, we got back and we're just about to have our like celebratory, hey, we're home from our honeymoon drink. And I was like, you know, just to be safe. Mm-hmm. And I took a pregnancy test and it's positive. Wow. And literally the day we got home from our honeymoon, we found out. Wow. So was your husband with you then? Oh, yeah. Okay. So you found out together. Yeah. (laughs) What was that moment like? Were you guys kind of in shock? Yeah, pure excitement, Mm. but also just floored that it had happened when it did, you know, timing wise, like we had had this amazing party to celebrate our wedding. And that was great. But then had over a week of just being so healthy and in our bodies, it felt like a really great way to start the pregnancy journey. Cause I just felt so strong in my body after, you know, backpacking 50 miles yeah. <laughs> through the wilderness. And, you know, when you're out there, you're not k- drinking alcohol or anything right. like that. So it just felt like, Oh, I'm like in my body. I'm really present. Yes. Now this is the timing. We couldn't have planned this any better. So that's awesome. And I guess, that part of it felt like it was timed really well. I was also in the middle of making my first feature film, uh, right. International Falls. So yeah. the timing around that was a little crazy because I still had a couple weeks of filming left to do. And so I Oh, so you the- were in the middle of filming when you... F- I'm sorry to cut you off. But yeah. I was curious about that because, you know, Josh mentioned later, like, wow, I can't believe she was pregnant during the making of that film. And so you... How far were you into filming? Well, we, we've... With that project, we filmed all the exteriors in March Mm. because we needed to do it in Minnesota when there was snow on the ground. So we did that part of it. And then I went off and got married in Mm. May. And then we filmed the rest of it starting in June. So I was like two months pregnant, I guess, when we were filming um, the second half of the production in June. That first trimester is usually the hardest. How was that for you? I don't know what was going on with my body, but I did not have any morning sickness for some reason. I had the exhaustion, but I guess the adrenaline of directing and producing my first feature sort of carried me through 
those, you know, the, the exhaustion yeah. in the early stages. And I, I just feel really, really lucky that I was never that sick. Um, and great. you know, it's just sort of sneaky and <laughs> like, make sure you give me decaf instead of regular coffee and nice. trying to make like, excuses around why I wouldn't go out with the crew to get a beer at the end of the day <laughs> when that's all you want to do. Yeah. So yeah, I was sneaky through, through the production and I guess it was, a couple months or a month or two after that, that I, because I was 35, I went ahead and did a blood test to the NIPT. You know, check on the baby mm-hmm, and find out the gender and all that. Do they usually do that at nine weeks? I think. I think it was closer to 12 for me. Mm-hmm. I think because I was out of town filming, I didn't really have my first doctor's appointment until I was a couple months in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So yeah, it was like the initial thing and then kind of set up the next visit for that, that test. Okay. So that's when my pregnancy story kind of shifted and changed a lot. (laughs) Right. Okay. So tell me about what that was like. So you went in to get your test and then what happened? So our first appointment, we went in and we were able to hear the heartbeat and everything. And then we went in and had the test to find out, you know, the gender and stuff and then had the anatomy scan and everything looked good, you know, like everything looked so great and we were so excited. So after that, that was when we decided to go ahead and tell our family because we were like just starting to come out of the first trimester, step into the second and we're feeling pretty good after that. So we just told my family and we called my husband's family in Northern Ireland and told all them. And then it was like two days later, the doctor uh, said that they had our results. And I can't remember exactly how it happened, but we were like scheduled to do a a phone call where they were going to tell us the results. And so I was at work. I was working at a production company in DC. My husband was at work. So the doctor calls and I was like, oh, can you hold on one second? I'm going to do a three-way call so my husband can join in. And she went, yeah, I think that's a good idea. And I was just like, hmm okay, that sounds, that's kind of weird, you know, like clocked it as like a weird thing to say. Right. And then just forgot it. And and then he joined the call. We're both so excited. I'm like standing out in the parking lot at the office where I was working. And she was like, so your baby tested negative for such and such, negative for such and such. Um, and then tested positive for trisomy 21. And I was like, we were both just silent. She's like, that's, that's Down syndrome. And we both just went, what? (laughs) She said, it's 99% conclusive that your baby has trisomy 21. And we just, I don't remember exactly what we said in that moment because we were just in such a state of shock, you know? Yeah. So I think that it left the doctor just sort of grasping for what to say. Right next. And sadly, I don't think our doctor had uh, received the training (laughs) needed Uh, for breaking the news of that diagnosis, because there's a lot of really good research out there about things to say and not say mm -hmm. when you're giving that news to parents. And uh, she hit all the the ones that she, you know, she like apologized and said, I'm so sorry. And which is one of the big no no's, Mm. you know, One thing she did say that was good, I guess, was, you know, this 
this isn't your fault. This isn't something that, you know, anything that you did could have caused. It's just like a random thing where you get three chromosomes instead of two. And so you shouldn't feel any like personal responsibility around this or anything like that. Yeah. And she said, I think we should schedule a visit for you to come in so we can talk about your options. You know, it's how they put it. Right. Of course, we know what that means. Mm -hmm. So I think I was crying by then, just still not sure what to do. And she's like, okay, well, once you've had time to talk and digest this, call me back. We'll set a time to meet face to face. And I was about to hang up the phone and my husband just jumped in and said, hey, wait a minute. Can you tell us the gender of the baby? (laughs) And she said, oh, 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 it's, it's a girl. And he said, thank you. And then she hung up. (laughs) Oh, man. Mm. Mm. And now knowing what I know and having been on this journey for a couple years, we always put Isla first. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. it's always Isla first and then her diagnosis second. And it's something that people in the differently abled community that we're all very, very careful about. You have a child with Down syndrome, not a Down syndrome child. Mm. You know what I mean? Yes, yes. And it's, you know, some people might think that's just semantics, but it's always the person before the disability. Right. And I think that that, um, that phone call was just a really shocking first introduction to how, I don't know, many people in the world see differently abled people. You know, she wasn't just the little girl. She was the diagnosis, right? Right. Right. So then, you know, gosh, we just kind of went down that deep rabbit hole of figuring out what that meant, right? Because we didn't have anyone in our family or any close friends that Mm. have that diagnosis. So you're just like, other than what you've seen on TV before and that really beautiful episode in Catastrophe that people, like some people have seen where she sees the little girl at the end after she's freaking out about her test. Right. Our experience is so limited. So you have all this fear that's just completely based on ignorance. So yeah, yeah, you start looking at health conditions that are often associated with that diagnosis. And it's just your heart just sinks because it's just the list is so long. (laughs) Yeah. Well, as a parent, you want the best for your child. And if you have any idea that they might have pain or hardship, my God, you know, yeah, of course, of course, that's going to bring up all sorts of fear. Yeah. And fear, fear for your child. And then also sort of like a selfish fear of like, can I, can I handle that as a parent? You know, like, what does this mean for us? What does it mean for us financially? And Mm. like my husband and I are both artists. Will our healthcare be able to (laughs) cover all of this? Mm. But I think early, early on in that diagnosis, you're on such a weird roller coaster. And you go from thinking about these health things, these really like selfless things. And then you think about you have these really selfish thoughts as well. Like, how is this going to change my life? What am I going to have to give up for this? How are people going to look at us differently? Are people going to feel sorry for us? We don't want Mm. people to feel sorry for us. You know, like we don't want to go through the world with people acting differently around us. Are our friends going to treat us differently? You know, it's just you go through so many different things. (laughs) Um, And going back to that conversation around having a supportive partner, it's like we just showed up for each other in those moments. And we went on that roller coaster together, Mm. felt all the things. 
And, you know, at the end of the day for us, our choice, we'd seen her heartbeat, you know, she was our little girl and that was it for us. And so the journey of the pregnancy, I think I got really lucky physically with the pregnancy because I felt really in my body and did not um, have a lot of physical discomfort or sickness or whatever. But oh my God, the emotional roller coaster was just. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I made up for it in spades in that regard. <laughs> yeah. Every pregnant Ooh. person has anxiety or worry or emotional, you know, well, I don't know. I'm saying every, but I, I, I haven't met one that hasn't, but you're dealing <laughs> with like next level just adjustment, you know, how you, you mentioned that you didn't have, so you didn't have like friends or family or anyone that you knew that had had that diagnosis. How did you find, did you reach out and look for a support system in any way? And how did you navigate finding support and, and understanding what you were sort of up against uh, as far as, you know, logistically and what to expect yeah. Moving forward. How did you, how did you, what did you do next about that? Um, I think one of the first things that I found really helpful was actually finding other moms on Instagram. Good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's very strange to me that I say that and I'm, I'm like not much of a social media hashtag sort of person, but it's actually like the first thing that brought me comfort because I could see it in context, like rather than just these images or this list of medical conditions, I got to see real moms interacting with their kids and what their day-to-day looked like. And, you know, was just amazed by, oh, like, I don't feel sorry for them. You know, like they seem happy. They don't seem like they want pity, you know, like they seem like many of them who have more than one child, it's like, oh, they just treat that child just the same as all their other children, you know? And again, it's like, now I just look back on that time. Like I just had so much ignorance (laughs) about it, but you're just coming into this sort of new and have no idea or real solid perspective on it. So I, I look to other moms. One thing that we did was immediately contact a geneticist. We were living in DC at the time and went to see a renowned like geneticist at Children's Hospital in DC, who was just a no-nonsense person, which was just like the best experience I could have had because I walk through the door at Children's Hospital and it's a really overwhelming thing to walk into a children's hospital and see so many sick children if you've never been in that place before. Yeah. So by the time I got to her office, I was just all tears, (laughs) like just this fear of the unknown. And are we, you know, children with Down syndrome are way more likely to get leukemia. 50% of children with Down syndrome have heart issues or lung problems. Mm -hmm. So there's just, there's a really long list. And she just, she sat us down. She was like, okay, I'm sure you've been doing your internet research, right? (laughs) Here are the hard facts about this diagnosis. And she just set us straight. She was like, people look at all these health conditions. She was like, your baby's not going to have all of those things at the same time. That doesn't happen. (laughs) So, you know, don't get overwhelmed. She just set us straight with some facts and some hard knowledge. I love her. That's wonderful. she She was so great. That's what people need. That's what yeah, people need. Exactly. Just the no nonsense approach to things. And 
I think after that, I just started to tease out like how I wanted to talk about it. And sort of you, you, you sort of like test these conversations on friends and family. And tell me what you mean by testing. The first people we told were our parents. And those were just raw before anything had really been processed sort of conversation. And we got the whole range of <laughs> reactions from them. Like, I don't want to call anyone out, but you know, everything from the, oh, okay, you know, great. It's going to be awesome to, oh God, you know? Oh, really? <laughs> so, you know, from that we were like, okay, people are going to respond to this in different ways. But, you know, when it came to telling friends and, and stuff, I, I think that because we didn't want people's pity and because it was our choice and because it was a choice we were ready to stand behind by the time we started telling people, we just, like with any choice you make in your life, we just owned it. (laughs) We owned it. So we would just talk about it in a way that made it okay, even if we had a lot of fear about it and spoke frankly about the fear. And then it left space for other people to be okay with it as well. (laughs) That's good. Yeah, that's uh, the best way to do it. I mean, also their opinions really don't matter. So no, (laughs) yeah, the end of the day, but I can imagine still having to deal with some, like you said, like most people are ignorant or fearful of an experience if they don't understand it. Yeah. And you don't know what sort of bias people are going to have even if it's unconscious bias, like when I told my bosses at work, it's like, are they thinking that I'm not going to be as available for my job because of this? You know, mm. like there are things like that, that you interesting, yeah, sort of negotiate as well as you, as you tell people, but yeah. <laughs> so uh, you're just on this roller coaster of learning and understanding and trying to see what this might be for your life, but you also are preparing to give birth to a child (laughs) out of your body. So there's all that physical stuff going on. So I'm (laughs) curious, what was your birth plan? And, you know, how are you preparing for the actual birth? Oh, boy, it was actually fun once the initial shock of the diagnosis sort of like as we got a little more used to it, like just starting to focus on that part mm-hmm. was a, such a relief for us, you know, mm-hmm. baby showers and things. Mm-hmm. We went to birthing classes at the hospital and I grew up dancing and don't dance anymore, but do a lot of yoga. So mm-hmm. I sort of came at it from this perspective of just being very, very curious about my body because I had just been used to controlling my body. So to have nature sort of (laughs) doing new things to it was like, I tried to approach it with a lot of curiosity instead of like, oh God, (laughs) I can't wear my pants anymore. (laughs) Yeah. But we all have those days, right? Um, Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. But for some reason, and I know this is not everyone's choice, I felt very much that I wanted to feel the full course of experiences through labor if that was possible. So part of our birth plan meant that unless there was something really like wrong in the labor that I wanted to try to do it without medication. And I would have been very interested in a water birth, but because of all of the health conditions that could come with this diagnosis, like there's some things you wouldn't know until until birth. So we felt that it was important to be in the hospital. (laughs) Right, right. 
Some hospitals I found out do water births. This is a new thing, but um, you know, like they have a tub option, which is amazing if people listening want to ask their doctor if that's a possibility. But um, yeah, no, I totally, I totally get that. Um, Water birth sounds awesome. I didn't go that route either, but yeah. So no pain medication. Did you feel that your care provider was really supportive in like your, how did you like your OB and did you feel like really supported and everything? Oh, good. She was great. She was great. And, you know, she, she was not the one who had done the initial test and dropped the news in the poor way. Mm -hmm. She was amazing and sympathetic and was our cheerleader. And with that diagnosis means you have to like go in way more frequently um, because you're considered a high risk pregnancy. So I just, I got to know all the people in that doctor's office really well. Good. She was very supportive. I think at that point, because we'd been through so much, she was just like, whatever y'all want to do, you know, I'll, I will honor that and we'll do the best we can to support that as, you know, as long as the baby's healthy, you know, but then I had this thing creep up called intermittent absent flow, Hmm. which means that basically the nutrients from your body aren't moving through the umbilical cord as strongly as they need to, to Hmm. support the baby. And it's something they kept an eye on for like a month or so when it first crept up. And then there was a certain point when I was 38 weeks pregnant, they said, we see this happening at this point, the baby's going to thrive more outside of your body instead of, you know, you Mm -hmm. trying to carry it full, full term. Mm -hmm, (laughs) Um, So it's best to induce you. And I had not really like dilated yet or anything like that. So, you know, we, we got the news that we had to check into the hospital at 8 p.m. that night. So my husband and I went and got a burger and went on our last date. <laughs> oh, smart of you to get a burger before the induction because oh, that can be a long thing. Did you have any it sort was. of concept about what an induction might be like before you experienced it? Just from the birth classes. Okay. They kind of mentioned the different ways people take the Pitocin and stuff like that and how for some people – labor can come on very fast with that if Mm -hmm. they do the IV and right. Everybody's different. Yeah. 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 So we went in and we did the, they gave it to me in pill form. Okay. And I took, I think you were supposed to take a pill once an hour for like 10 or 12 hours or something like that. That's probably the pill to soften your cervix to open it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. I got three pills in and the baby's heart dropped crazy. And it's like, all of a sudden, all these nurses come swooping in and fly me back and I've got oxygen on my face and all this stuff. So her heart rate dropped twice and it was scary. And the doctor's like, we're going to stop this. You know, we're going to just like, let you sleep overnight. We'll reassess tomorrow. And then everything just sort of stopped and we slept through that night, then had all day the next day. Just kind of hanging out, not feeling anything. I was working. I had my laptop. I was sitting in bed working. (laughs) Great. (laughs) Love it. So the doctors were just sort of hoping that maybe your body would start something without giving you anything else yet. He's like, maybe we've kickstarted this enough that, you know, things will happen. Right. Start just to just happen on its own. And I don't want to be checking you a lot, you know, because they don't like to do that. Risk infection, all this kind of stuff. So... I kind of went through the whole day with nothing happening and, you know, not eating anything. But at five o'clock, he came in. He was like, yeah, nothing. He checked me. Nothing's really happening. He's like, I tell you what, get someone to go get you a big meal. 
Nice. Good. He's like, you've dilated a little bit, but it doesn't seem like you're really like having contractions yet. He's like, have a good meal, take a shower, get a good night's sleep. And then we may try the, I think they can do it in tampon form. Mm -hmm. We'll try that in the morning if nothing has changed. So I had my fried chicken and potatoes, (laughs) had a great shower. And then around 10 o'clock, kind of like I'd watch some TV with my husband. And then we, he's like, okay, I think I'm just going to try to get some sleep now. And something started to feel weird. And I was like, I don't know how much sleep you're going to get tonight. (laughs) (laughs) And like contractions started happening, but the doctor had told the nurse to not really check me overnight, that I'd been checked enough to just wait until he came back in the morning to check me. I kind of love this doctor, by the way, like the fact that he gave he's like, make sure you have a meal. And you know, a lot yeah. of doctors aren't that like concerned about how you're feeling. <laughs> Let uh, leave her alone. Okay, that's that's kind of nice. Yeah. yeah. Hey, it's me, Christy. I just want to let you know, producing, editing and hosting this podcast has truly brought me so much joy over the past year. And you know what else brings me a lot of joy? Your ratings and reviews. Every time I get one, it's like Christmas morning times 10 million. So thank you so much for taking the time to send me some love in that way. It's really the best way to send support to me if you are someone who enjoys all this free content I'm making for you. And if you want even more free content and resources, make sure to visit birthshow.com where you'll see tons of recommended products and books and videos and tips and tricks that might help you on your own journey as you prepare to give birth and enter parenthood. Birthshow.com. The link is right in the show notes. Easy to find. Birthshow.com. And now back to the show. Okay, so the nurse isn't really checking you. You're there through the night. And And I'm confused because all of my pain is in my back. Like I never feel anything weird in the front. So the monitors aren't really tracking big contractions with me or anything like that. Mm -hmm. But I am in a lot of pain and it gets more regular and more regular through the night. Are you moving around? How are you coping? How are you trying? We had like a yoga ball and then one of the yoga ball like peanut size Mm -hmm. one. So I sat on that a lot, sort of leaning over the bed and then, you know, would just, like I wanted to be in my body. So I was just moving around a lot and Mm -hmm. had my husband pushing on my back because that's where all of my contraction pain was. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it was like around 5 a.m. or something like that. I I think that they call it transition started vomiting and got very sick. Yeah. And yeah, the nurse had like come in a couple times overnight, just kind of looking at me. She look at, read the monitor and wasn't really reading like a lot of contractions or whatever, or a lot of intensity with it. And then when she came in and saw me, she really sick. She was like, you know, I know the doctor said not to check you, but I'm gonna, I think maybe I should. And I was dilated eight centimeters. <laughs> oh, wow. Amber, that's so impressive. You were just doing this by yourself. How are you? It was crazy. Was your husband, it was just you and your husband in the room, right? You didn't have a doula yeah. or anything. So nope. was he doing a counter pressure or any sort of like helping you or you just were sort of like in your zone and he was just there with you 
supportively the the counter pressure and okay using like the massage balls on my back and mm-hmm. stuff were mm-hmm. sort of the main thing that he was doing we had this band called the gloaming that's like my favorite irish band it's like this really soothing music i think we listened to that thing on repeat 10 times <laughs> over oh, the nice. course of that night and I was just drinking a lot of Gatorade. <laughs> Ooh, Gatorade. That's smart. <laughs> I didn't ever think to drink Gatorade. You're smart. Okay. Um, all right. So it's, she says, wow, you're eight centimeters. And then. And she's like, well, I guess we, because I was still in like the place where they induce you. She's like, we got to get you to labor and delivery. <gasps> oh my gosh. You were still in the, like the triage room. That's yeah. so amazing. Oh. Oh my gosh. So all of a sudden they're like, my husband's scrambling to pack up the room and stuff. And the doctor that had been on call had this hilarious moment where they packed me up. I was laying in the bed. My husband's like loaded down with all of our gear, yoga ball, pillows, bags, <laughs> walking down the hallway. And the doctor's standing there at like the nurse's station as we roll by and he looks at me. He's like, Hey, I was hoping nature would just take its course. <laughs> thumbs up. <laughs> and we just rolled down the hall. And then by the time I got in the room, it was like six, six o'clock, six thirty. And then Isla was born around nine AM. So it all wow. kind of happened pretty, pretty fast once Tell it got me going. <laughs> about that transition time until labor. That's some really intense pain. Oh, yes. How are you doing with that? And I mean, you seem like you're so calm. And I can just uh, picture you as being like, you know, oh, I was the Zen calm mama. But what? (laughs) Tell me what tell me. I'm a screamer. Um, (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yes. Good, good. Okay. (laughs) I yeah, was not like in some sort of lotus position sort of no, 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 no. I was I screamed my way through that pain. Mm. And, you know, just tried my best to breathe between contractions. Right. And yeah, I think it was just, it was such an odd pain, because I I think in my mind, I had expected that it would just feel like the worst cramps of my entire life or something like that. But because it was all in my back, mm-hmm. I didn't quite know like what to do with that sort of pain. Right, <laughs> it was right. A strange spot. I didn't know how to redirect it. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And you felt really supported by the nurses and they were like communicating to you what was happening after? Oh, they were great. Oh, good. The induction part of things was just strange. I did not quite feel taken care of there. I right. just kind of felt like we were left on our own, which I actually love now in hindsight because, you know, if things had just started on their own, I think my husband and I would have tried to stay home and deal with early contractions on our own for as long as possible anyway. Mm-hmm. So in our own sort of weird way, we got to still do that. But the the nurses were great. And with the timing of it, my, my OB that I had really seen through the whole process came in an hour or two before Isla was born. So she's the one that got to deliver her. That's great. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. And that felt really special because she had been there through the early diagnosis and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So that was really good. So yeah, I mean, intense, Mm -hmm. awful pain. (laughs) It's so funny. I got a tattoo a few years ago. And I think in my mind, I was just thinking, you know, like the good pain that you've chosen when you get a tattoo and you just kind of lean into it and zen out, like that's what it's going to be like in 
in labor, you know, I'll just, I'll go to that same head space. It's, it's way worse. It's definitely way worse. That's but, great. That's so hysterical. I know you really can't be prepared for that, but you have to sort of just give over to it. Yeah. You just have to give over to it. <laughs> so I want to know about the pushing phase. So at what point did you get to 10? And then what, how long did you push for? What was the actual birth pushing and birth like? I think the pushing, I think that was like between 30 and 45 minutes for us. It's pretty good. I think that, that my water had not completely broken. So the doctor had to do that. That probably made it more intense, huh? Yeah, that definitely, I think that sort of like raised it to the final level. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. But people, you know, they they start asking you like, do you feel like you need to push? And you're like, I'm in so much pain. How do, how am I supposed to know when it's time to push? I, it's such right. a, it feels like such a weird question. Like, but you know, you, your body, you start feeling, I guess, pressure. Mm-hmm. And I translated that as like the need to push. And they said that I was dilated enough. Hmm. And I, I just remember feeling like I wish someone had, had told me that if you feel a sort of hard, <laughs> this might be too graphic. No, nothing's too graphic for this show. Almost like a weird tearing sensation, then you might be doing it right. <laughs> okay. It's like I, I had started pushing and I had a hard time finding the rhythm of the breath. Hmm. And so once we found, the nurses helped me find that. Okay. Things started to move pretty quickly and like her head was crowning and the, you know, the doctor was like, you should, she's like, All right, between contractions now, Amber, I want you to just like feel her head mm-hmm. and like get that sensation and know that, you know, it's real, it's happening and know how close you are. Like, you don't have too much further to go. Okay. They offered the mirror thing and I tried it for two seconds. I was like, hell no, get that thing away from me. <laughs> so funny. Everybody is so different about that. I think I would have been the same, but. (laughs) Yeah, nope. Don't need to see. (laughs) How did you, did, how was the experience feeling her head? Did that help? It did. It did. It it just helped me see the light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So really as they were coaching me through it, I realized that like when I had that sort of tearing sensation that that actually meant that I was pushing her out. Right. So that's maybe what they call the ring of fire. Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. But she, she was six pounds, three ounces. So it was not like a huge baby. (laughs) That's still not, you know, that's good. That's fine. (laughs) Yeah. It was, you know, it was like a good size, especially at 38 weeks, I guess. Yeah. So she came out and tell me what that moment was like. What was that like? Did they take her immediately away because they knew her diagnosis or what did they, what happened? Did you get to hold her? Yes. So, I mean, I will say the first thing I thought was all of the pain of having to experience the pain of labor was worth it. So I could feel that sensation of her leaving my body. And I know that everyone has different it's everyone's choice, right? We all mm-hmm. kind of approach this in our own ways. And I really, I really want to honor that for all of your listeners. But that was a sensation for me, like feeling that, mm-hmm. feeling her leave my body was just so amazing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm at a loss for words. Yeah. And, you know, my husband cut the cord and they immediately like put her on me. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, and then they, you know, took her over to the side to do the evaluation. And I think that we had a couple of extra people in the room because of her diagnosis. I couldn't tell you now who all it was. Right. But, you know, they do their assessment of, and everything. And I guess they all knew that we knew the diagnosis early on or whatever, because it was like this really beautiful moment where the nurse or or the pediatrician, I guess, who is in the room that to do that initial assessment, uh, like kind of picked her up and was like bringing her back over to us after they had done like, I guess, the APGAR test and all that kind of stuff. And she was like holding her and had this beautiful smile on her face. And she was just like, you have a very healthy little girl. And she also has all of the characteristics of Down syndrome. And I said, thank you. I know. <laughs> and uh, and then she handed her to me and I was like, yep, yeah, you're perfect and you're healthy and you have Down syndrome. And all of those words can live together, you know? Yes, they can. Yes. Wow. I love that you have a memory of a pediatrician who uh, brought you your baby with such joy, you know? Yeah. That's beautiful. That's someone that's doing their job right. Yeah. Yeah. That's wonderful. Uh, and I imagine for them, you know, they, I imagine they, they have to break that news to moms in that moment sometimes, you know, for me, right. for some moms, that's the first time they're hearing those words. Right. But yeah, for for us in that context, it was really special. <laughs> That's wonderful. So she was healthy and yeah. she could stay with you. She didn't have to go to the NICU or anything. Mm -hmm. That's wonderful. And it's, it's pretty rare for kiddos with that diagnosis. So we were, wow. we were really grateful that that happened. <laughs> wow. Okay. So besides the like the moments of, you know, the emotions following meeting your baby, which is just, you know, overwhelming. How are you doing physically? Did you, did you tear? I tore a little bit, but not enough to need stitches. Excellent. That's wonderful. Good. And um, delivered, you know, the placenta and stuff pretty quickly after and had some trouble using the bathroom. So I had to have a catheter. <laughs> oh yeah. That's a, that's a whole thing. No one tells you about oh, giving birth is the bathroom stuff afterwards. Oh, God. oh good Lord. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> us women just sort of like deal with this stuff. Um, <laughs> did you, how long did you have to wear the catheter? Was that like oh, a day quick. or it was like just oh. enough to get me out of the labor and delivery area. Oh, okay, they, good. you know, needed to make sure I would, could go before they sent right. me off to the recovery area. Great. What was the delivering the placenta of the placenta? Like, did you look at it or did you even think about it? By the time when we were doing that, my husband was doing like skin to skin with her. Uh-huh. And so I was more just like annoyed that I had to like deal with it than anything else. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, I feel like in the birthing class, they kind of set it up like, oh, you know, once you get the baby out, it's just like a little blip. Like I actually had to like push to get it out. Um, it was more than just a little blip. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I remember having to push too. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, but. Oof. How was your husband in the first moments? Was he so emotional? Were you guys feeling very emotional? I think that we were both just surprised that it had happened so quickly. I think mm. because we were on our own for most of the night, 
we were just sort of like sitting in our own ignorance thinking, and because I hadn't been checked, I didn't know how far I was dilated. I was like, oh man, like this is just the early labor. I've got a whole mm. day of labor ahead of me. Like we didn't really realize how far along we are, we were. And then once we got to labor and delivery, everything happened so fast <laughs> mm. that we just weren't, I, I say fast. I mean, I've been in the hospital for two days, you know, but right, right. Just the, the end part happened so fast. Well, that's great. And now it's time for a quick tip with Christy. Quick tip. So if you're someone who's planning on giving birth in a hospital, did you know that it's super easy to look up that hospital's performance in several areas surrounding maternity care, and you can find out instantly what their percentage of C-sections are and what their percentage of episiotomies are. You can find out if they screen babies for jaundice, how many women receive treatment to prevent blood clots, all these different details. And the way that you can find this out is a website called leapfroggroup.org. The link is in the show notes. Basically what they do is they work with a panel of experts to create the ideal standard for care. And then they rate hospitals across the country based upon how they measure up against that standard of care. I found this site and I went down this rabbit hole of looking up all these different hospitals in my area, in the Los Angeles area. And I was kind of surprised at some of the ones that are, you know, supposedly great hospitals have extremely high C-section rates. The leapfrog standard is that hospitals should have a rate of C-sections of 23.9% or less and episiotomies of 5% or less. And it was interesting to me because I looked up the hospital that I gave birth in and discovered that they actually had an excellent rating on both of these things. And it kind of made me feel good because as someone who did end up with an episiotomy out of necessity, I felt like, okay... The doctor made that call because I really needed it, not because it was convenient for that doctor. And so it's kind of nice. So maybe if you're curious and you want to check out the hospital that you gave birth at, look up leapfroggroup.org. Or obviously, if you're someone who's planning on giving birth, check out your hospital on there as well. If your hospital is not listed, there are other ways you can find out their rating, or you can reach out to the organization to see if they have contacted your hospital. But it's interesting. It's just a really quick tip. Easy to find out if you're curious about that and you want to prepare to give birth in a hospital that you feel like you can really trust that they're doing everything they can to provide the best standard of care and that ultimately they will have your best interest at heart. Quick tip. How was the first few days in the hospital? And I'm going to ask you, I'm ignorant about this, but was breastfeeding something that you were going to try to do? Did you breastfeed? And is there any sort of challenges with that, with the diagnosis of mm -hmm. Down syndrome? And can you tell me about that? Yeah. So it's breastfeeding like a whole thing because many, many kids with Down syndrome are more drowsy 
So they sleep a lot more right after they're born. And pretty much everyone with that diagnosis has lower muscle tone. And that includes the mouth and the tongue and all those Mm. muscles as well. So Mm -hmm. actually very few women end up being able to breastfeed kids who have Down syndrome. And of course, you know, I was like determined to prove everyone wrong and all this kind of stuff. And things went okay in the hospital. You know, my milk came in. We got off to a good start. She latched okay then? She did okay, you know. Great. And they kind of gave us a couple weird little like syringes because they like taught me how to use the pump. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And they're like, you can, you know, you're worried about her getting enough. You can use this little syringe thing and like kind of put some in after you've pumped, like get feed it to her that way to make sure she's getting some. It was kind of strange. Um, No, that's good that you had that option if you were feeling frustrated, you know, like some people don't get communicated to that, you know, if you feel like your baby's not getting enough food, you can give them colostrum that way easily. So that's nice that they had that, you know. Yeah communication. To yeah. You. Yeah. Was there a lactation consultant that was helping you? Mm-hmm. Okay. Did you feel like she was trained sort of to help you understand the challenges you were facing? Yeah. Again, I feel like I got the exact right person. She was like this no nonsense lactation consultant who like, again, kind of came in and gave me the hard facts and stuff. And as we built our relationship, I found out that she had had a child with special needs that had passed away a couple years before mm. that. And so mm. she had the demeanor of a mom that was not a, oh, let me like coddle the situation. And no, we're getting on with it. That was her right. approach. Love it. I love these people that these people are great. Yeah. <laughs> Thank God for these angels. Know, right? Okay, good. Yeah. So she helped me, but we I guess to make a, a very, very long lactation journey story short, it went okay at first. And then because of the drowsiness and I had a hard time keeping her awake, I was, it was January and I was stripping her down naked and putting wet washcloths on her face to try to keep her awake and stuff. She just didn't get enough. And I was, I started pumping a lot because I was like, maybe she just needs more milk. And then I think it was too much milk. And the mm. doctor got worried because she started losing weight. So they asked me to sort of supplement with a bottle. So then I was pumping to give her the bottle, but then also trying to breastfeed and had lactation consultants coming to the house and months of of trying to make it work. And finally, I gave up the nursing part and then pumped for a solid year. <laughs> wow, that's impressive for anyone, but I'm really impressed by that. I took that pump everywhere because I was traveling for my film. I pumped in probably 20 different airports around the country. I pumped on airplanes. I pumped on ferry (laughs) in Seattle. I pumped at a movie theater in Bentonville, Arkansas. I took that damn pump everywhere and I was ready to set it on fire by the time I finally went. I know what you mean. I mean, I didn't pump that exclusively, but I had a breastfeeding pillow that I was like, I'm going to have a ceremony and I'm going to burn this thing in a bonfire. (laughs) Yeah. But what a sacrifice and uh, commitment you made to to give her that gift. That's really cool. (laughs) So she didn't have problem with the bottle and she was good after after she started using a bottle then? 
we tried a couple different bottles um, and finally found one that worked. And can you tell me what one that is? Maybe I'll put it in the show notes if it helps someone else. That's, or do you remember? Avent. Oh, Avent. Okay. Mm-hmm. We tried like the Dr. Brown's is the other popular one. We tried a couple other mm-hmm. ones, but the Avent ones seemed to do better and seemed to make her have to work hard enough to get it out. You want them to get the nutrition they need, but you also don't want to make it so easy that they're not using those muscles and learning how to do those right. things. You know? Yeah. Yeah. That's true. That's good. Okay. So yeah, oh my gosh, you were so you had done this film and then by the time you were in postpartum, the film you're having to promote the film yeah. and it was coming out, mm-hmm. right? So how far into postpartum were you when you had to like hit the road and go do all this stuff? Isla and I took our first flight together at two months old. Wow. So we flew to Atlanta for the premiere of the film when she was two months old. And we were just coming out of all of the weight scare time. You know, we really didn't mm. cross that threshold until she was six weeks old, I guess. Mm. Those first two months before that premiere with the nursing and the adjustment to being a new mom and the pumping and all that chaos, we were still finishing the film. So I was... Right. You're still directing it in post-production, right? Yes. We were doing the color correction the sound mix. And I just remember starting phone calls. Hey, if you hear any weird noises, you know, feeding my baby in the background. Wow, <laughs> She's five weeks old. That's where we are with this. But I think in some ways, having the distraction and the chaos of the film helped me through that postpartum time because I had so much going on. I mean, probably to a fault, you know, mm. it, and it, in a way, I mean, we all kind of like take our life lessons in different way. I think because one of my big fears in becoming a mom was that I was going to have to let go of career stuff. Mm-hmm. That career it, it certainly didn't go away. <laughs> my email inbox was waiting for me when I was ready to come back from work. Right. Um, it rained, it poured, it was ramping up, yeah, sounds like. Yeah, so... <laughs> One of my big lessons was, you know, that one of the things I feared was obviously did not come true. (laughs) Right. Isn't it interesting that like, I had a similar sort of fear, but you when you become a mom, you sort of realize that you have more capacity Mm -hmm. than you ever knew about yourself. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't necessarily feel good when you're expanding. Yeah. But you do, you do have the capability of expansion. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's made me a better director. I mean, obviously, I feel like it's absolutely made me a better writer because it's deepened my, God, my capacity for empathy and, you know, mm-hmm. love and all of those things. You know, I see the world mm-hmm. in such a different way now. But I think in all the ways you were just saying about multitasking and holding many different demands at the same time. It's like, it's exactly what directing is all about for me, you know? So it is. Yeah, that's true. Wow. Oh man, I'm so excited for the next movie. (laughs) It's going to be on top of it. So as far as like the postpartum physically for you, how was that? Did anything surprise you about the healing from postpartum for your own body personally? Or was it just sort of like, not a big deal. I mean, I guess it's it's always a big deal. I, I think 
things healed up in the way that, you know, you don't, ha- you didn't have any issues basically. No, I, you didn't have any problems come up. Or- I, I didn't have any issues with that. Um, I did have, when you have like the milk glands swell up and the, Oh, the mastitis. Oh, that's painful. Which was not fun. Heating pads were like the only thing that would help me through that. Mm, that's tough. That was that part was hard, <laughs> but everything else seemed to heal up okay. And I tried to just get back into yoga and you know walking. Like I just walk my neighborhood <laughs> for hours and hours. Did Isla like being in the stroller yeah. and yeah. car seat and stuff? That's nice. Yeah, that's good. took a lot of naps in that thing. <laughs> <laughs> How was the first couple months for her besides the weight, you know, fluctuations and everything? Did she have to see the pediatrician more often or, or, you know, often? I don't know what more often means, but like, was there any particular things that you had to look out for with her or was everything good? Well, I, I think because of her diagnosis, her pediatrician sort of took things to an 11 every time there was like a tiny thing that, you know, probably for a typically Mm -hmm. developing child, they would just be like, oh, let's just sit on it a little while. You know, with with the weight gain issues, she was like, I want to have blood tests around this. You know, I want to have her heart checked. I want to, you know, she she really did her homework, Mm -hmm. which was annoying at the time because it felt like every day we had an appointment. But, Mm -hmm. you know, she was just being extra cautious because there are so many associated health conditions that can kind of come with that diagnosis. So I'd say we had a lot of extra doctor's appointments in those first few weeks because of that. But after about six weeks in, things settled down and then we just were on the regular schedule of vaccines and all that kind of stuff. Okay, great, great. What was the learning curve of of getting to know her? And Mm -hmm. when when did you feel like you were in a rhythm with her as mom and baby? Oh, that's such a great question. (laughs) Mm Hmm. I feel like anytime I would just let myself follow my dang instincts, things were good. Mm. And anytime I started to second guess myself or try to research my way out of something that I already knew in my gut, you know, that was like a hard dance for me in the beginning, just learning to trust myself. Right. There was a moment when the doctor was sending us for extra tests where you know, I was trying to get more weight on her. And every time we went out, it was like such an ordeal and I would be pumping. And then it felt like she didn't want to eat because we were out somewhere and it was very stressful. And finally I asked the doctor, if that's your medical opinion, what's your opinion as a mother? And she said, well, as a mom, I would do this. And I was like, great. Cause that's what I'm feeling. So I'm going to take the mom mm-hmm. advice instead of the medical advice. <laughs> Because she had to cover her ass as a physician and just to make sure she was doing things. And at a certain point, I was just like, I think if I could just get a few days here at home with my baby to figure this shit out, then the weight gain problems are going to be, you know, we'll we'll see an improvement there. But when I have to get out of the house every single day for a doctor's appointment and it's messing up our schedule and I'm not comfortable and I'm still learning how to do this, we're not finding our flow. So I think just learning to trust that instinct was like a big mom lesson and a big life lesson for me because, you know, most of the time that gut instinct you have is the right thing. And the hard part is just listening to it. 
I love that advice. That's really, really true. It's, it's really good. Beautiful. But I was great, you know, and people, you know, I guess I, I worried some about people, people say things about, oh, are you going to be able to connect if you're not nursing? And, you know, who says that? What's wrong with know. those people? I don't know. Yes, we connected, you know, she's amazing. And, and she's, she's always just been such a mover. I remember every single time we went in for an ultrasound when I was pregnant with her, the tech would be like, oh my God, she's, she's moving around so much. And she, she's just always <laughs> been a little mover and shaker. There's just so much personality in her that has been overwhelmingly beautiful for me to watch and discover that has nothing to do with her diagnosis, mm. you know? Yeah. She's just a bright light. The world is going to be a kinder place because of her. <laughs> oh, we need more people like her. We need more people like her. That's awesome. I'm wondering, you know, a lot of people that are listening might end up knowing someone close to them that ends up with a diagnosis like this. And as someone who's just come through it, what sort of things have you found to be the most helpful in a supportive mm -hmm. way? that uh, family members or friends of someone else going through a journey like you're going through can maybe think about or do mm -hmm. or implement or say or not say, you know what I mean? Like, I think that there's, like you said earlier, like differently abled people, we ha sort of have a harder time knowing how to approach that situation mm -hmm. a lot of times for lots of different reasons. But what's most helpful that someone can know on how to support yeah. that person? Yeah. I see the world with so much more curiosity now. And when I see a differently abled person, I used to feel, I used to feel nervous. Like, what is this interaction going to be like? And that's me just being really frank and raw, you know? Right. Now, when I see a differently abled person, I am so eager to connect <laughs> because I want them to know that I see the bright light that they are as a person. Mm. And I guess I say that because I've been through such a perspective shift over this journey that I want to talk to anyone and everyone that I can about those experiences, because the only thing that got me through it was human conversations. So for someone who has just gotten this diagnosis or know someone who has, I would just say like steer people away from Google doctor <laughs> yeah, and put them in touch with real people who've been through it. Because in the way that I learned not to pity the moms or, you know, things like that in my own journey, it brings the human perspective rather than just the medical perspective to it. Right. And every other mom that I know that has been on a similar journey, we know how scary that diagnosis is. And we all are so, so okay with it now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we want to tell everyone it's going to be okay. It's really scary. And you have to accept the fact that it's going to be scary, but then it's also going to be okay. You know, you have to, again, you have to hold those two things at the same time and know that it's going to be scary and there's lots of fear of the unknown, but at the end of the day, it's your baby, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, I love that. That's so, so beautiful. And you know, it reminds me of like, well, first of all, I really love how you used the phrase, I'm much more curious now. Like, I think that that whole idea of just staying curious, as opposed to making a judgment or making an assumption or just stay curious is so key. That's something I want to be more of every day. But that also reminds me of, I heard a a young woman who was in a wheelchair, she's paraplegic. And she, she was talking about how one of the challenges that she faces is that people don't know how to treat her because as children, we're told, don't stare, don't point. Mm-hmm. And that sort of creates a fear around mm-hmm. disabled people that it's not our intention as parents to maybe tell our children or to, you know, don't to to fear of course it's not our intention to to fear differently about people but because it's considered rude to be curious mm-hmm. about them then we grow up sort of thinking that we need to ignore them or not look at them or be fearful of them or not be curious mm-hmm. about them right and that sort of isolates mm-hmm. them further <laughs> it's making me emotional because i feel like as a mother to a young you know, able child who has a lot of privilege, I dream of, of, you know, trying to find a different way to help him be curious Mm -hmm. and not be raised in a way that isolates um, differently Mm -hmm. able people. And I, um, I don't know, I think that's just something that's really important to like, think about and strive for. Uh, It's much harder to implement because we have these habits, you know, and they do, they come from our childhood. Mm -hmm of not wanting to be rude and not wanting to intrude. And, and so I think this is just a really important yeah. conversation for that reason alone of, of let's all try to find more ways of being curious and, and loving mm-hmm. as opposed to being afraid and uncertain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's just really, really beautiful. I think one of the big things that cracked open for my husband and I pretty early in the pregnancy when we had just gotten the diagnosis is who are we to say what a successful life looks like? Because early on as parents, you, you know, when you first find out that you're pregnant, it's like, oh, I wonder if they're going to get your eyes or my hair. You know, Mm -hmm. I wonder if they'll get your creative side or my math skills or whatever. And with this diagnosis, I think we just sort of took a step back and we were like, let's just make sure she's happy. You know, let's just Mm -hmm. make sure she's a happy kid. And that she's not an asshole. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe she'll go to college. Maybe she won't. You know, maybe she'll get her driver's license one day. Maybe she won't. Does it mean that her life isn't as valuable or isn't as much of a success as someone else's who can do all of those things? No, it's like, so it's really pushed us to reckon with that, just that question of what does a successful quote unquote life look like? And who are we letting determine that? Right. Yes. Yes. Beautifully said. Beautifully (laughs) said. This has been such an honor for me to get to talk to you. Thank you for your curiosity and wanting to go there. (laughs) I do. I want to go there. Um, There is something that I was curious about. And if you don't want to talk about it, that's totally fine. But I think this might be something a lot of people would, would wonder where their mind would be at if they had a child with Down syndrome, where is your mind with possibly having another child 
And how is that something you've thought about? And how do you think about it? I don't know. I, it's a sensitive yeah. topic, right? Because I don't want to presume that you would want to share with me your future no. conception plans or anything like that. But has having a child with Down syndrome possibly changed your perspective on having more children? Uh, no. <laughs> uh, in a nutshell, again, Google is a bad doctor and you read a lot of shit that's scary because once you have had a child with this diagnosis, there is at least a 1% chance that your next child could have it as well. I don't I don't know the science behind that, but the a 1% chance though? Oh, it's that's pretty, pretty low. low. In the in the grand <laughs> scheme, it's, you know, a much greater chance than, right. you know, most people would, right. you know usually have. Mm -hmm. And obviously it changes based on your age and all that kind of stuff too. But I want her to have a playmate. We definitely want to have another kid. Mm. And, you know, if we're able to, that will be great. And we do know that, you know, the possibility of it happening again, does exist and we're okay with that. Right. Well, condoms don't work 1% of the time. Right. So I feel like that's not that big of a percent. Percentage, but also knowing what you know now, you'll just be more equipped to like face any challenge that comes your way. I think. Yeah. Oh, Amber, I think that's all the questions I have. Is there anything I didn't mention that you want to share, or and maybe any resources you think might be helpful for anyone listening? Uh, Most states have networks in place to support these communities and specifically Down syndrome. So, you know, we have an amazing group of people here in Atlanta, moms that I'm in touch with every week. And for people who are new to the journey, who maybe have a differently abled child or, you know, maybe they've gotten that diagnosis or something like there are so many resources out there. And it's okay to kind of jump into them as much as you feel ready for, right? Some people want to take a deep dive into Mm -hmm. that work and advocacy in the community. Some people need more time to process it themselves. And, you know, it's, it's the integration question that a lot of people with differently abled children ask themselves. But there are a lot of great resources out there. And if anyone is just, I guess, curious about things, there's a lot of activism around specifically this diagnosis, because one of the things we're working on right now with COVID is that people with Down syndrome are 10 times more likely to die of COVID because of associated health conditions. So we are doing a lot of work right now to Mm. appeal to our state representatives to put them higher on the priority list for vaccination. Because I know at least right now in the state of Georgia, they are sort of the in the third grouping. And even now, and that's, that's just for kids over the age of 16. So caretakers of children who are in high risk categories need to be put higher on the list for vaccines, like with yeah. where we are right now with COVID. Also, there's a lot of advocacy around transplant eligibility. Mm. I, I don't know if I'm pretty sure this is a national thing. It's not just Georgia, but I don't think that People with Down syndrome are eligible for uh, organ transplants in the same way that other people are. So there's there's still a lot of sort of bias (laughs) around the diagnosis because, you know, Mm. 30 years ago, the life expectancy of people with this diagnosis wasn't as long as it is now. 
and there's a lot of advocacy and work yeah. to do. So if anyone is feels inspired, we can always use more help. <laughs> right. Wow. Okay. Yeah. The more you know, just spread the word. Thank you for coming at this with such an open heart. It made it easy to share the story. I really appreciate you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I, uh, I appreciate your heart as well. So it's nice to see and be seen. Thank you again to Amber McGinnis. And for the rest of you, I want you to go and check out those show notes. Just swipe up on the episode. Check out all the links that I've put there for you. Make sure you go watch Amber's feature film, International Falls. Watch that beautiful short film that she made about her journey to becoming Isla's mom. And also in the show notes, I've linked some resources where you can learn more about the Down syndrome diagnosis and do your own research on the realities versus the misconceptions of that. Educate yourself. Share this episode with anyone you know that you think it might be helpful to. Rate, review, subscribe if you find this show at all helpful to you, encouraging to you, or educational. Please do me a solid and rate, review, and subscribe. I really appreciate when you do that. It really sends back some love my way. And just a reminder that this episode is the finale for season two. Season three is coming. I'm already working on it, but you're going to need to follow at birth show to find out specifically when that's going to come out as I announce that soon. Also make sure you subscribe right now so that when season three premieres, you're going to automatically just start getting those episodes. It's a great way to make sure you don't miss out on season three is by just hitting that subscribe button right now. Some of the fun stuff that you can look forward to in season three is I'm doing not just one episode with a lactation consultant. I am doing a whole series with one. There's going to be several episodes throughout that season that are focusing in on the challenges of breastfeeding and what no one tells you about breastfeeding. So that's something that's awesome. I'm really excited about for season three. Also, as usual, you'll hear a ton more birth stories from new parents as well as experts coming in to give super helpful advice and perspective as you enter your parenthood journey. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any of this great content coming your way soon. The last thing that I want to say today is that if you're somebody who is about to give birth very soon, I just want to send you a little bit of extra love and strength. You can do this. 108 billion people have been born on planet Earth. You're not alone. All those mothers who have given birth in our ancestry are standing behind you, rooting you on. You can do this. You have been gifted with a special power, and I want you to own it. Recognize that. Lean into your instincts. Remember that no matter what, you already are the best mother for your child. Ask for help when you need it. Communicate with your partner. Communicate your needs to your care providers. Don't settle. Insist upon the best for yourself and for your baby. And you're going to kill it, mama. You've got this. You can do this. And I'm in your corner. I really, really am. Thank you so much for being part of this community. I'm your host, Christy Williams, and you have been listening to Birth. 
This is a Sync Studios production.